This episode is sponsored by Penguin Teen. From number one New York Times bestselling author Sabah Tahir comes a brilliant, unforgettable, and heart-wrenching contemporary YA novel about family and forgiveness, love and loss, and a sweeping story that crosses generations and continents. Lahore, Pakistan, then. Misba is a dreamer and storyteller, newly married to Tufik in an arranged match. After their young life is shaken by tragedy, they come to the United States and open Cloud's Rest in Motel, hoping for a new start. Juniper, California, now. Salahuddin and Noor are more than best friends. They are family. Growing up as outcasts in the small desert town of Juniper, California, they understand each other the way no one else does, until the fight which destroys their bond with the swift fury of a star exploding. Now, Sal scrambles to run the family motel, and Noor walks a harrowing tightrope, working at her wrathful uncle's liquor store while hiding the fact that she's applying to college so she can escape Juniper forever. When Sal's attempts to save the motel spiral out of control, he and Noor must ask themselves what friendship is worth and what it takes to defeat the monsters in their past and the ones in their midst. From one of the most cherished and best-selling young adult authors comes a breathtaking novel about young love, old regrets, and forgiveness, one that's both tragic and poignant in its tender ferocity. And it's already received six starred reviews. That is All My Rage by Sabah Tahir. And thanks so much to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by Erica Azafetti and me, Tears of Price. We are recording on February 24th, 2022. And today we're going to be taking a slightly different approach to our normal format. We're going to address an elephant in the room right now, which is censorship. And so this isn't going to be like a normal episode where we talk about books mostly and sort of issues as a secondary talking point, um, because this is a pretty big and complicated topic. And chances are, if you're listening to this podcast, you're aware of what's going on in the broad sense. But today, Erica and I want to dig in a little bit deeper. So hello, Erica. Are you ready for this? Oh my god, here's I guess. I mean, yes, in short, yes. <laughs> Cuz yes. it's like as depressing and infuriating as it is, it definitely needs to be, you know, dived into and explored more. Yeah, and the thing is too, it's like I just uh, even typing up the show notes mm. and kind of collecting some thoughts for this, like I was getting angry, but like underneath the anger and just i'm weary yeah i'm so weary of having to like devote so much mental space and energy to just being like let's talk about this like very basic and boring censorship issue because that's the thing like i find this so boring because it's always the same yeah and but like it's important we have to keep showing up we have to keep fighting and like that's kind of the point is like the opposition wants us to get tired Mm -hmm. so we stop fighting so we can't I think it's interesting how they have this like energizer bunny level of stamina to to be with this. Like as you said, it's boring. It's like y'all are still at this still. How long has it been? And you're still doing this. And it's it's interesting how the the method for this, the end goal, the methods haven't changed that much throughout history. And and the end goal being 
you know, white supremacy and um, controlling the narrative, which the narrative is white supremacy. (laughs) So they've been trying to maintain control of the narrative in interest of white supremacy for hundreds of years now, at least in Mm -hmm. the United States. But I, I think it's interesting how the methods for doing so, like I said a second ago, are the same, which is, again, controlling the narrative and inflicting violence. Yeah. It's interesting because it's like they are the same, but at the same time, they're getting more sophisticated, which I think is something that we want to talk about, too. Because That's true. I don't think that a lot of people realize that a lot of these censorship challenges are coming from a place of like deep organization within certain conservative groups where they are well funded. And that sounds so conspiracy theory like, but it's it's true. Like, you know, there's reporting that indicates just that. So that's scary, <laughs> you know? Like, they've gotten more sophisticated. Yeah. It's, it's like the same old boring, I was about to swear, same old boring <laughs> stuff, but it's like a next level insidious. Yeah. I think the insidiousness of it has come as a result of, like, you can't outwardly be racist. Or, I mean, I mean, some people are. They don't care about being judged for being racist. But I feel like a lot of racism, sexism, homophobia... All those isms and phobias, I feel like they've become, um, they've been pushed, you know, kind of underneath and it's been relegated to like subtext and microaggressions and sometimes some very real actual physical aggression and harm and, and death. But I feel like as far as like when people talk about it, when politicians address it, they are more sophisticated because it's not accepted it's not acceptable to be an outright bigot. Yeah. Well, and then again, <laughs> there's a higher social cost for it these days. Yeah. But then again, it's like you see some of it coming out, and well, then, then, then I think that's part of the thing is like they they want us to believe that like oh what they're saying isn't racist. Mm-hmm. They don't want you to call them out and be like, well, that's transphobic. That's racist. Um, because then, you know, it makes them look bad. So if they can kind of cast it in a different light and be like, oh, no, where it's about protecting our children. Mm-hmm. It's about making sure that our children don't feel ashamed for the past. Then it's like, oh, then all of a sudden there's something new to debate when the, there's really not, you know? No, exactly. And I think it's important for people to not separate The present from the past, like I think a lot of us think of like the 50s and before that as being like very distant times in terms of like social ideologies and policies and civil rights and stuff, but they're not. And I think to think of them as being separate from our present day is a a form of privilege because, Mm -hmm. you know, well, for instance... Me being black, um, I feel like I've mentioned I'm black every episode. <laughs> I just realized that. Um, but yes, I am black, quite black. So I grew up being warned about discrimination in various ways, sometimes jokingly, sometimes not so jokingly. And I know a lot of other black Americans have that experience. So I say it's a privilege for some people to act like, you know, the Jim Crow South was a long time ago and therefore for distant from our present reality because for other people it's not that distant like 
Mm-hmm. My grandparents grew up with a lot more discrimination in the American South. So the warnings and stuff that I got from them was not just some, you know, antiquated, you know, school book lesson, but rather their lived experiences. I recently did like a very mild, like genealogy search. And I saw that my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather's mom or his grandmother was a slave so I'm like, it's not that far, honestly. No. So to, you know, to think of times where uh, what we were just talking about, like subjugation, you know, outright physical terror are that far from now is a privilege. I think people need to think of those times as being, you know, just around the corner. I feel like that can kind of just, you know, reframe things. Yeah. And I think like, to sort of piggyback off of that and tie this into, you know, books and book riot, we get like a lot of, you know, critique and criticism and like not just like, you know, me personally, but I've seen this like across the board with like a lot of writers at Book Riot and like whatever we do, whether it's newsletters, podcasts, like content, social media, which is like, why are you talking politics? Like I read books to escape politics. And like what you're saying is that like for some of us, we can't just escape it. And if you can escape like the horribleness of the world in a good book, that is like a level of privilege. And like, obviously, you know, that's not anything that is by your own virtue or doing. But I do think that we need to be aware of that. And also just, you know, because if we're aware of our privilege, we're aware of the power that we have in certain spaces to speak up. And I think that especially ties into when you have all of these books that are largely about and by marginalized people that are being challenged, you know, who is losing out? Like, you and I can always go buy these books because we're adults with adult money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kids have, you know, access to public libraries or parents who can buy books. They have other ways of getting books. But for so many children and, and teens, like the only way they get books is in their school libraries. So what happens when all of these diverse essential books disappear? Like their world shrinks down into a very white and limited perspective. Mm -hmm. And that makes me angry. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah. And I'm doing a lot of nervous laughing because I'm angry and I don't want to like explode into swearing. But this is just like, yeah, it's it's a big it's a big thing that's happening right now. And and we do kind of want to keep this kind of like beyond like, oh, these are the books that are being challenged. Mm -hmm. Um, And we want to dig into, you know, some of the things that are going on behind the scenes that a lot of people might not be thinking about when it comes to banned books, but then also like some solutions and and areas of resistance and all that fun stuff. Um, So hopefully you come away from this not feeling so much as angry as empowered, although a bit of anger can empower you to go a long way. Mm, yes. Empowering anger. I like that. <laughs> For real. All right. Do you want to give us our first sponsor and then we can dive in? For sure. This episode is sponsored by The Lost Dreamer by Liz Huerta with Fierce Reads. A stunning novel inspired by ancient Mesoamerica, this gripping debut introduces us to a lineage of seers defiantly resisting the shifting patriarchal state that would see them destroyed. Perfect for fans of Tomi Adeyemi and Sabata here. 
with a detailed supernaturally charged setting and topical themes of patriarchal power and female strength, The Lost Dreamer brings an ancient world to life, mirroring the challenges of our modern one. This book is getting lots of buzz. Entertainment Weekly called it spring's buzziest fantasy debut, and BuzzFeed says its glorious world-building and powerful leads make this a can't-miss read. Thanks again to The Lost Dreamer by Liz Huerta with Fierce Reads for sponsoring this episode. All right. So, <sighs> oh, where to dive in? <laughs> um, yeah. Let's just do kind of like a quick over, you know, like a broad overlook of what's happening right now. Because I think a lot of people are, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast you know that this is probably going on. But if you don't know a lot about what's going on, in summary, the um, American Library Association Office of Intellectual Freedom is um, saying that there are an unprecedented number of book challenges sweeping the country right now. I feel like uh, obviously challenges happen all the time. There's definitely obviously been a huge spike in them. But for me, like the moment where I was like WTF, sort of like the changing moment was when a Texas state representative came up with this list of 850 books that he wanted schools and libraries um, to look into and investigate. And basically, they were books that he felt might make students feel uncomfortable on the basis of, you know, race, sexuality, etc, etc. And The reason that felt different, not just because of, like, the huge number of books. Like, 850 books is a lot of books. Ridiculous. That's, like, more books than I read in, like, four years. That's a lot of books. But, you know, it's just, it it was a Texas state representative who came up with this list, and he was asking these school libraries to investigate. And that, in and of itself, was, like, a little bit unusual. Like, not wholly unprecedented, but a a bit unusual. Um, So, you know, that happened at the end of October. And it really, like, just kind of, you know, got a lot of buzz and created this cascade of challenges that really, I think what it was meant to do was just, like, put this topic in the national news and get a lot of people who might not be paying attention to books in schools, all of a sudden, like, angry and stirred up to, like, you know, stoke the flames. So, you know, then, you know, there's just been so many challenges. They touch like every single state in the country. And in a lot of cases, there have been a lot of local state governments wanting to make decisions about books in schools. And what's really alarming is that the, the argument has shifted from like, you know, are these books appropriate in schools to, well, shouldn't parents have a say in what their children read in schools? Parents ought to have a choice. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's called, you know, you elect somebody to the school board and then you like hire administrators who hire teachers who are all professionally trained in these subjects. Like that is how society is supposed to work. Um, so but like now we're seeing lots of challenges to this. So that I mean, very broadly is what's happening right now. Excellent summary, first off. Um, But it's interesting um, because there was a recent story that we released at Book Riot that was showing that only 27% of people in Texas trust politicians' judgment of of school books. 
Oof. So. (laughs) That's pretty low. It's pretty low. The survey was conducted um, this month, this year. They they, uh, surveyed about 1,200 registered voters. 33% were Democrat. 41% were Republican. 26 identified as neither. And they surveyed them on various topics um, concerning Texas politics. And that included book bans. So one of the questions was, how do you trust the judgment of elected state leaders in reviewing what books are controversial and should be removed from K through 12 schools? And like I said a second ago, 27% approved of them. So I feel like, um, as you said before, it's this huge list of 850 books that Matt Krause um, elected should be removed from schools and reviewed. Um, it definitely seems like a ploy to get national, you know, attention on it and to, I think, overstate the, yeah. to overstate how many people want this to happen who are in Texas, for instance. Yeah. And that's like a good point because it gets at one of our points that we want to make is like the issue of these challenges, like they take time away from people doing the work. Like 850 books. Like I just said, like that's more books than I read in four years. Like there's no way that even like one of the most like well-staffed library with like multiple experts in teen and children's literature can quickly review and evaluate 850 books. Like it's impossible. I mean, if he doesn't know this, then like he, I mean, he knows what he's doing. It's it's like just throwing so much work onto libraries and librarians and and, like there have been a lot of great articles about like the cost of doing that um and how like it's it's unreasonable to put that work and that much effort for libraries and librarians to justify like what they've already purchased Mm -hmm. and so and like i have also i've worked in public libraries i've actually you know dealt firsthand with challenges I've had to, you know, go to my director when we've received a challenge, justify why I bought a certain book that was being challenged for the collection. And it takes time. Wow. And so, yeah, because like you, you have to sit down, you have to, you know, look at the book if you haven't already read it, because, you know, I would buy books I'd not read, but And every librarian does that. But you do so by, you know, adhering to your collection development policy, by looking at reviews, by reading about books. And and that is how you that's how you choose books. So you have to take this book. You have to evaluate it. You have to identify its target audience. You have to identify how it fits in with your collection. You have to identify how it fits within your collection development policies then you might have to pull like, oh, okay, this is, you know, here are some favorable reviews, like trade reviews, not just reader reviews, but like actual backed trade reviews. And here are like the awards the book has won. You have to justify the book. And then, you know, the director of the library will have to address any particular complaints. Like there's a really great um, example that we posted on Book Riot of somebody in Texas challenging Gender Queer, which is the graphic novel about growing up non-binary. And they proclaimed that it's pornographic and pornography is against state law, so therefore it should be removed. And what this library director actually did was consulted with the city attorney, which is very good, that's doing the due diligence. Mm -hmm. And the city attorney was able to identify pornography like within the context of this challenge and prove that like, 
like, no, this is not pornography in this context. And, and then you have to like write a letter explaining all of this. Usually that has to go before the library board or trustees. You have to have this whole conversation and then you make a decision and then the director has to respond to the original complaint. So I feel like I just spent a lot of time talking about the process. Like that is the process in a nutshell with everything going smoothly. But that is that's what is happening right now is that librarians and teachers have to spend more time on paperwork and justifying all of these purchases rather than just like relying on their training. And it's taking away from doing real important work that needs to be done in schools and libraries. It, It just makes me angry. So yeah. And it's interesting that they have to prove. I feel like I feel like the people who are m- making the challenges should prove that the book is unsuitable. Mhm. Documented Rap- in, you know, cuz back to Matt Krause's 850 uh book list ban or whatever. There were some Danica Ellis at Book Riot. She went through and analyzed the whole list. And some of the books he included on there were like part of a series. And he would list like the second or the third or something in the series. And it's like, okay, what about the first? So it was clear that you all are not reading these books. You're, exactly. you're looking at what they're titled. You're looking at who authored them. Mm-hmm. Um, and who authored them usually they're usually black or another racial minority. They're trans, they're queer, and you're just sticking with that. I feel like they should, the onus of responsibility on, of um, proving something should be on them. They should be writing letters. Yeah, but you know, if they write, I want to challenge this book because I'm a racist, then they oh. wouldn't be taken seriously. Oh, okay. Good point, Tirza. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Unfortunately, yeah. that's that's their um yeah, and I think that's another important um facet to this whole situation, which is like to me it's a very obvious attack against marginalized folks, particularly black um authors, and I think that they are getting like not to play any oppression Olympics here, but I do feel like black authors are getting more targeted than other racial minorities just because a lot of these conversations are centering around critical race theory, which is so ridiculous because, you know, people are challenging any book by a black author and they're citing the reason is critical race theory when the book is not about critical race theory at all. It's just, you know, these characters are black and why does that, automatically constitute a political issue it doesn't yeah so you know and then there's uh, challenges against queer authors trans authors Erin Hahn, who's a YA author, who's a white, cis, straight woman, wrote, like, here are all of these things that I have written about. And she was like, you know, I've written about queer couples. I've written about sex before marriage. I've written, like, about toxic, you know, church purity culture. Mm-hmm. I've written about all of these things. But, like, my books have never been banned. Yeah. It's almost like it's not about the content or the books at all. Which I think there is a grain of truth in that. Like I I do feel like you know, the this is an attack not necessarily on books, although certainly the books are the focus, but it's on people who have a different point of view than you. And that is what's scary because 
I don't know about you, but I relied on books so much as a kid, Mm -hmm. especially as somebody who for a long time in my teen years did not realize that I was queer. Once I sort of started to have those questions, the first thing I did was I went to YA books. And I can't imagine what I would have done if I hadn't had those books. So it's really alarming to me to think of a school library without any LGBTQ books at all. Like I, my heart aches for those, the queer students in those schools, because there are queer students in those schools. Mm -hmm. There are. I feel like, (laughs) it's like, where do you even start? I feel like in response to, on the note of critical race theory, Again, a lot of our listeners are going to be at least somewhat familiar with that um, ongoing issue. But critical race theory is something that's taught in like graduate school. I would say it's not even necessarily, well, I can't speak for every undergrad program, but it's something that you learn after high school, basically. Yeah, you're not getting it in kindergarten. No, you're not getting it in K through 12. Most likely you're not. I mean, past grade 12, a lot of people might not even want to get into th- into the thick of it, even people who are interested in, you know, anti-racist leanings, just because it's a, you know, a particular, like, learning path, you know. So, I, I feel like, as we've been saying earlier in this episode, like, book bans are nothing new, censorship is not new, but I do wonder if the kind of amped up state book banning and censorship is in, I wonder if it is a, you know, direct result of the 2020 protests that came because of, that happened because of George Floyd's murder. I think that people saw the response that like everyone had to that. Things like Black Lives Matter and protests and stuff had been going on for years. Well, they've always been going on. Yeah. Yeah. Since the since this country, you know, was started as the United States. But I think people who were skeptical of it, of and when I say it, I mean police brutality, um, subjugation of uh, people of color, specifically black people by authority figures, etc. People who were skeptical of it were like not skeptical at that point because that it was on video. So mm-hmm. I think that really changed a lot of people's mind on issues like that and it just as we saw it kind of just opened like people opened up a lot of organizations and just people on social media who were not previously you know talking about it we're talking about it um my neighborhood even now still there are you know black lives matter signs in yards and stuff like that and people who didn't go to protest protests were suddenly going to protest So I feel like this amped up effort, I feel like it's in response to that. It's to counter that, that awareness that was suddenly turned on in, you know, May 2020, I I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just having more widespread news coverage of the protests and that really you know, brought it into like the mainstream discussion for a lot of white Americans who um, had the privilege to kind of just tune out previously. And all of a sudden, like it's in your face because it's on the news. It's it's what 
people are talking about it's on social media and that sort of visibility and awareness is really important. Um, but I totally agree with you. I think that it's definitely in reaction to a lot of protests and a lot of people just speaking out and being like, no more, like we're, we're done. Like things have to change. Um, Which is why I think, and I alluded to this earlier, a lot of, I think what a lot of people need to understand is that like, it's not just that, oh, books are getting more risque these days. And that's why people are challenging them. A lot of these challenges are a concerted effort by conservative backed groups with deep pockets, um, you know, groups like Moms of Liberty, who are like faith based parents rights organization groups who are like literally organizing and educating other people on how to challenge books in their own communities. And that is alarming to me because, you know, that's that's organization that's, I don't know, like I said, it's insidious, it's intent, it's very full of intent. And it makes me, yeah, it makes me very uneasy, especially because I also can't separate a lot of what's going on with, you know, what was just announced yesterday um, in Texas, which is Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, has directed um, Texas um, CPS to investigate trans kids as abuse cases. So basically, any kid who is trans and who has adults in their lives who are supporting them, um, they can now be investigated as as child abuse. And that is horrifying. And he's also ordered that you know, people in schools report that, like they have to report that. Um, and that, yeah, I just, it, it's horrifying. <laughs> I don't know what more to say. Um, I was sick yesterday when I read the news. I wasn't surprised, but I was sick. It's almost, uh, I guess I shouldn't say, it's kind of almost unbelievable that that's even happening now. But again, I'll follow my own advice and not separate <laughs> the past from the present, honestly. But it does take a moment. Like sometimes news sounds like something out of a dystopian novel mm-hmm. that I've read. So yeah. I don't know how this Texas news is going to. Well, that's really hard. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. I mean, that's why you mentioned it just now. It's not a coincidence that there have been so many challenges against specifically trans books um, the past few months. And this is coming. It's kind of like it was leading here all along in a way. Yeah. Not to be too conspiratorial or anything like that. But here we are. And I'm not excited to know what like the next step is. But it is, as you said before, it is a very concerted effort and i mean it's fascism <laughs> can we just go there yeah it's so interesting to me how many people will be like oh this is like you know what was happening in nazi germany and they will kind of say that with like this wonder in their voice like can you believe that it's actually happening here it's so alarming and it's like yeah so what are you gonna do about it yeah. like like, let's not just kind of compare it to something in the past, because I think it's really, like you were saying, it's very easy to kind of be like, oh, this is just like something that happened so far in the past. But, you know, that was in the past and we got through it. And it's like, yeah, but like, here we are again. And also, in case you remember, millions of people died as a result of something that started with book burning. So let's yeah. not go there. 
Yeah. So clearly I have I have strong feelings about about that. As we all do, as you should. Huh. So we're going to talk about some things that I think we can do together. And this is obviously not an exhaustive list. And we're going to try to end with some positive news and some sort of empowering ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but first, I do have to give you another sponsor. So hang with us. Um, this episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio and Merritt Weisenberg's The Golden State, read by Audi Award winner Brittany Presley. The Winslow family has five rules. No one can know your real name. Don't stay in one place too long. If you sense anything is wrong, go immediately to the meeting spot. Keeping the family together is everything. And we wish you could tell you who we were, but we can't. So when the results of a DNA test Poppy took in secret unraveled the truth about her parents' identities, Poppy realizes she's undone decades of cover-up work and the past is dangerously close to catching up on them. This Golden State is a propulsive breakout audiobook following a family on the run, a restless teenage daughter hungry for the truth, and the simple DNA test that threatens their carefully crafted world. It's read by Audi Award-winning narrator Brittany Presley, whose narrator I personally admire a lot, and Kirkus Reviews calls this Golden State captivating. Thank you so much to Macmillan Audio for sponsoring this episode. All right. So actions, solutions, good news. Uh I just have a list here, but we're going to kind of go through and talk and, you know, Erica, you're going to add to things, I'm sure. But I feel like one of the things that tends to get glossed over in this, like, age of, like, write to your senators, speak out, go march, do this, is that, like, really a lot of this stuff happens closer to home or starts closer to home. Mm -hmm. So if you hear friends, family, or acquaintances spreading misinformation, racism, homophobia, transphobia stop it nip it in the bud just say something mm-hmm. um one of the things um my partner and my partner's trans and they have their own sort of stuff that they're going you know dealing with at work and you know diversity inclusion is always kind of something that like they get roped into as like the token trans person at work yeah um but one thing that they um like to say a lot is um I we need we don't need you to just be an ally. We need you to be an accomplice, mm. and that is I think great because mm. an accomplice does does things. An accomplice is active, like takes action. Because I think it's so easy for people to be like, "Oh, I'm an ally because this is what I believe," and it's mm-hmm. like that's great. But like now we need you to act on that belief. So I mean, what that looks like is if somebody says something racist, call them out. Yeah. If somebody misuses pronouns, you can just gently correct them. Like, it doesn't have to be a whole thing. If somebody is saying something that's wrong or homophobic, say something. And I mean, I admit, like, it's uncomfortable. I don't like being uncomfortable. But, like, you're not doing anybody any good if you just, like, decide to be quietly uncomfortable when somebody says something awful and then, like, you don't say something because that other person should be uncomfortable they're the ones that are saying something that's you know that wrong part. or racist or homophobic yeah like i feel like a lot of people spend a lot of time making bigots and racists and all those people feel like considering their feelings they're not considering anyone else's feelings exactly so that's like i feel like my starting point right there yeah I mean, keeping in line with the Nazi Germany comparisons, I know there's this one picture that's like super famous. I forget where it is, but it was at the height of that. And it's like a picture of all these 
people doing the salute and there's one guy in the picture who's not and he looks like he's disapproving and it was like i believe the story was that he was dating a jewish woman or something like that but in so many instances not saying anything is kind of a, is a sign of is a sign of acceptance or acquiescence i feel complicity yeah, complicity. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you, Tears. I was like, what is it? I was I was in the A range, but I needed to go to C's. <laughs> it's a sign of being complicit. And it signals, if you don't say anything, it sends signals to the person who said the offensive thing that you kind of agree with them, that they're right in saying that. And anyone else around them who hears it, they're going to feel like that you both agree on that kids who are around it kind of helps to teach them that like okay this is like you know the way to be especially if you're an adult um Mm -hmm. if you're adults you're modeling that behavior so i like that you mentioned that as a first step because i don't think people take that step as seriously as they should because that's where a lot of it starts and it's like if you're just in an echo chamber well an echo chamber is like having those thoughts echoed back to you but i think complicity is not too far from from outright saying like oh i agree with you and saying that trans people should not xyz or black people should not you know this that and the third so i really like that you um said that i think that people are so again (sighs) scared of being uncomfortable wanting to be comfortable and not realizing that (laughs) always being comfortable and being able to being able to make sure that they feel comfortable by avoiding these uncomfortable topics is a sign of privilege. And like you said before, it's no one's blaming you for being privileged. No one is trying to fight you for it. It's just like, just acknowledge that that is the case and then move on to see like, you know, what you can do to help remedy the situation. Because like I said, if you're um, like, we've been saying, if you're, you know, a person of color or trans or queer, you're already uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're, if you heard that offensive statement that the person said, and you belong to one of those groups, you're going to be super duper uncomfortable. So just think about that when, you know, it comes time to speak out against something. Absolutely. So my next points, I think, um, you know, they're, they're more on the, the whole thing of, Obviously, a lot of these challenges are coming from a place of like mass organization. So um, we just have to respond with more mass organization. And I think if you are a teacher or a librarian and you're listening to this, you're probably already on top of this. But if you're not, like know your acquisition policies. Like if you don't have clear, specific acquisition policies, now is the time to set them. Um, Now is the time to revisit them to make sure that they're up to date and that they're clear. Um, I think at this point, I I was chatting with a friend who sits on the library board um, in another town and she's just like it for us it's not a matter of like if we get a challenge it's it's when we're waiting for it like we wow. are anticipating it and I do feel like 
that is how a lot of people do feel. Like I was reading an article in my local paper last week where the library director was saying like, you know, we haven't had any challenges yet, but like this is our stance on them. And I do appreciate that they are kind of getting out the the information that like, look, this is not who we are. Like if you challenge a book, we're not just going to be like, oh, OK, and pull it off the shelf. Like now is the time to be very clear about where you stand. Yeah. So if you're a teacher or librarian, make sure that your policies are up to date and clear because your policies will, you know, guide you if if we want the system to work as it's supposed to like we have to have clear policies that we can you know support and and point to so um to that point if you're not a teacher or librarian there are still ways that you can get involved as a reader and as a citizen consider sitting on your library board i feel like this is a thing that like a lot of readers don't like stop and consider as a possibility. Um, I have a really great post on Book Riot about like the why and how of like why you should sit on your library board. There's a link in the show notes. But you know, every public library is governed by like a board or, you know, board of trustees, however they call it. It's basically, you know, essentially the same thing, which is like a board of citizens gets to determine how the library is run and who hires the director. And they work with the director and usually with a governing body like a city or or a county, depending on what sort of library you have set up, to set these policies and to deal with challenges. So like if you are concerned about challenges being, you know, addressed in your library board, go sit on your library board. Go sit on your school board. I don't know as much about sitting on a local school board. I don't have children. I, I just don't know as much about how that works. But like, go figure it out. And finally, like, if you can't sit on these boards, which is completely understandable, because unfortunately, a lot of time and effort and like unpaid labor goes into doing yeah. this. And it's not always suitable for people who work full time. Like a lot of times, like board meetings will be in the middle of the afternoon or something like that. And that's really obnoxious. However, even if you can't like actually go sit on a board, um, read the minutes of like the board meeting minutes. So those minutes must be published publicly like by law they have to be posted publicly so you know if you can't find them ask for them if nobody's willing to give them to you make a fuss because they should but the reason for this is like it's important to know what's going on it's important to know what issues are being discussed because sometimes there are issues of censorship that you can find in minutes that might not make it to local news or there are things that are happening that you're like "Mm, i don't agree with that Well, even if you don't sit on a board, you still have power. You can show up to meetings. If you can't show up to meetings, you can write a letter to the board. Like, these board members are supposed to represent the people. Mm -hmm. So make your voice heard. Know what's going on. And, you know, even, (laughs) even if the issues in question aren't about censorship... Like, you should still know what's going on. I think one really telling article that we're going to link here was um, one that Kelly wrote. And she wrote about how these challenges were going through this board. And so many people showed up for the meeting where they were going to discuss whether or not to keep the books. And then as soon as they decided, okay, we're going to keep the books, the meeting wasn't over. Like, 90% of the audience left. Oh, my God. They were like, okay, cool. So, like, they didn't care to know, like, what else was going on. Mm -hmm. And, like, that is a problem as well. That's not one that we'll get into right now. Um, but like, the, <laughs> but those are like some, I think, really actionable things that 
you know, you should just know about. Like, mm-hmm. read your local paper. Read your local library minutes. Know what's going on in your community. I feel like, and I might just, just might be the exception. I feel like a lot of, I don't hear much about local news from like peers and stuff like that. I don't know if that's just my friends or our generation at large. I'm not sure. I do hear, you know, talk of like national and world news, but I do think that I, for one, um, and people I speak to on a regular basis could definitely benefit from uh, reading local news more. Yeah. Well, I think well, the issue is that, like, a lot of us don't subscribe to newspapers at yeah. a local level. Yeah. And, like, that is just, like, a cultural shift, especially with our generation, like, yeah. the millennials. But we are on social media all the time. And, like, Twitter will show us world headlines mm-hmm. and state headlines to a certain extent. And you'll see things pop up on Instagram or on Facebook You'll, yeah, like those world headlines, like they tend to grab more attention. So we'll talk about those. But like, unless you make a concerted effort to go out of your way and know what's going on in your local community, yeah, you don't know what's going on. And I think that like my challenge to anybody who is not especially like keyed into their local news, um, especially if you live in like a small town, mm-hmm. go to your local newspaper's website and see how much it is just for a digital subscription. Like I subscribe to my one of my local papers because I live in a small town, but we're lucky enough to have two papers. One of my local papers I subscribe to for $4 a month mm. and the other for like $10 a month. So for the cost of a Netflix subscription, I have two local newspapers that sometimes yes do show overlapping news stories but i have two local newspapers that like i get you know access to and i do have to make time out of my day to remember to like go check and read the paper or you know read the website but it's important because that's i that's how you find out about these things you know yeah it is and i think it's um like a cultural shift a generational shift and I think it is important, as you're saying, to be more proactive in doing that, because a lot of times I think, like, we're starting to fight against these um, instances of attempted censorship and book bans once they're already, they've already got steam, you know, because if it, they've been going on for a while. Kelly also has a really helpful anti-censorship toolkit. We'll leave that in the links as well. And she mentions how, you know, also talking to your newspaper, um, like writing, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, Tears are like, don't be afraid to write to people, talk about the library, hype it up, talk about the importance of it. Also talk about things that you're seeing that you don't care for at the library, maybe. Like, if you feel like your library is an undergoing censorship, like through the school board, just, you know, be in communication with them. And also submitting uh, materials requests for books by authors of color and queer authors um, show that those books are wanted by people in the community, i.e. you. check them out. (laughs) Check Check them them out. out. Yeah, just go, just check them out. Even if you don't finish it, just check them out. Yeah, and it's so weird to me because, like, I used to work in collection development and I would talk to patrons and they would like, we talk about books and I'd, they'd be like, oh, you know, I don't, oh, maybe, maybe you get that book in, but maybe not. And I'd be like, tell me what book you want, because it is literally my job to buy what the community wants. Yeah. And like, obviously every library is going to have their own collection development policy, 
But our policy was that, like, we prioritize what the community requests. Yeah. So don't feel like you're making this big ask or you're putting anybody out by requesting books that you actually want to check out and read. Like, that is literally what your tax dollars should be funding. Yeah. There are inter... I don't know. I'm guessing that, well, based on what you just said, like, say if someone had, like, an interlibrary loan request, you would, like then consider ordering that book for your regular collection, right? Just as an example. Yeah, as an example, like, you know, sometimes, like, one request doesn't always, like, right. float to, like, the surface. But, like, yeah, if, if I, I used to look at this report that would, like, give us every single interlibrary loan request in the month. And we could, like, rank the report by, like, how many times a book was requested, like, a certain book. So, like, the top books, like, what are the top books that are being requested? Is it a book that we don't have? And, like, eight people requested it in a month. Like, that means that I should probably right. get it. Right. You know, stuff like that. Um, but I think also, like, yeah, I'm submitting, like, purchase requests and talking to your librarians, too, about, like, what you want. And, and just saying, like, oh, I really like novels, like, horror novels by people of color. Like, it'd be cool to see more of those in, mm-hmm. like... You know, if if librarians are doing their job, like, they will hopefully get that in because they can say, oh, but this patron asked for that. This patron said that they wanted to check this out. So I think that's, like, a really easy and, like, low-cost way of supporting yeah. diverse collections. And I would even say, too, to make sure you, like, email them so then there's, like, a record of it. You know what I yeah. mean? Just an, ex- an extra tip. A lot of people or a lot of libraries have, like, if you have a library card with them, if you go to their website, then you realize that you have an account on their, like, online database. Mm -hmm. And it depends on, you know, what system your libraries use. But, like, my library has this really cool system um, called Apollo Bibliotics, and it's really easy to use. I've, like, used it as a librarian, but, like, now also as a patron. And it's, like, you put in your library card number and a password that you set up with the library and you can see everything and like you can actually submit purchase requests right through that so sometimes you don't even have to talk to people or really go out of your way you literally just like fill out a form on your library website that sounds really nice i'm not i don't i'm not sure if my library has that but i'll definitely look into it I mean, yeah. I do wear out that app, I will say. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> I do. I love on that. Yes. So I'll definitely have to look to see if that is there. And also in the interest, in the interest of staying up to date on things like this, mentioning Kelly again, she does do a weekly roundup of censorship news on Book Riot. So, you know, definitely check that out every Friday. And I would also yes. recommend, I actually, um, wrote an article for them, but Anti-Racism Daily does a newsletter and it's usually like a short read. And even if you can't, I like the structure that they have for their newsletter sends. Even if you can't dedicate time to reading the entire thing, a lot of times they offer summaries, um, like usually kind of towards the bottom. So you can get the bullet points and just kind of have basic knowledge of what's going on. And it's called Anti-Racism Daily. Obviously, they cover racism. They cover everything, though. Racism, homophobia, education, discrimination, housing discrimination, all that stuff. So I think that is an excellent way to just stay informed. And sometimes it's, as we've said, you know, throughout this episode, it's it can be surprising to see, like, what is going on that you would not have known had you not um, been going out of your way to see it. Absolutely. 
Oh, these are all such great resources. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, you know, we very pointedly are leaving for last, like, obviously read banned books. I think sometimes that gets like tossed around as as like the cure. Yeah. Um, but the point is that when books are censored, they're challenged and they're pulled from libraries. People can't read them. You know, there are are kids and teens who then do like they lose access. They no longer have any access, despite lots of efforts to donate books and really try to connect kids with books. What we're seeing right now is kind of just like this absolute avalanche of challenges. And there's no possible way for everybody to, you know, donate hundreds of books that are being pulled from shelves to all the kids who want to read them um, because so many of them rely on being able to be in the library yeah. and check out books then. So reading banned books is absolutely important and I don't want to like diminish that. And I do think that like, if you're going to donate banned books to organizations or put them in little free libraries, please do continue to do that. But like, don't let that be the only thing you do. It's really, like you said, putting a bandaid on the problem because, okay, you read those those particular banned books and you buy them for X amount of libra- libraries, then the people who are fighting them and censoring them in the first place are just going to come up with new books that they ban. So it's like... Exactly. Yeah. Fight the system, not, you know... I, I like I the the writer and reader in me doesn't want to be like don't don't just flood them with books but like right. you know that like yes like don't just do that but like keep doing that but also you know understand that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and there's you know a lot of organization and insidious intent behind all of this so hopefully if you understand that you will be better equipped to fight against it in small and big ways And yeah, we hope you take a look at a lot of these resources and kind of come up with your own plan. Like I, my hope would be that everybody listening to this would figure out like at least one piece of action that they can do Uh like this week um, from what we've talked about and, and stick with it, please. And obviously let us know if you do take action, you can find us on social media. Um, but the, probably the best way to get a hold of us is emailing us at heyya at bookriot.com. And that, um, yeah, that's a great way to get a hold of us. And we'd love to hear what you are doing. And if you have other ideas, we'd love to hear that too. Yeah, definitely. Other charities or just other creative ways of getting involved and staying involved that other people can do. Yes. All right. We could go on and on, but I think we need to wrap it up. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. Um, You can always leave us feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify to let us know how we're doing. That also helps others find us and email us, of course. Again, our email address is heyya at bookriot.com. And don't forget to visit bookriot.com for newsletters, more podcasts, and all things bookish. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thanks as always to our awesome audience audio editor Jen Zink. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I hang out at t- um, it's at Tears of Price. It's T-I-R-Z-A-H-P-R-I-C-E. And Erica, how about you? I am occasionally on Twitter at Erica underscore E-Z-E underscore. So that's E-R-I-C-A underscore E-Z-E underscore. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with us, even though it was quite a heavy topic and we got a little bit spicy. A little spicy. Um, (laughs) We will be back again in two weeks.